Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And we finally made it to the end of the week. It's the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. So glad you've joined us. Grab the stool over there. Jim, we've got, uh, what do we have? We've got two goods and a crazy martini today, and none of them uh, relate to the fact that the House Judiciary Committee uh, just voted out both articles of impeachment. I think you and I have both seen this as uh, pretty much a done deal for weeks now. Party line votes. Get a floor vote next week. Not a lot to dissect here because uh, we know what's going to happen in the House, and we're pretty sure we know what's going to happen in the Senate. Oh, impeachment's going on. Boring. That sums up impeachment for today. Let's move on to the first of our good martinis. And, uh, Jim, we were hopeful yesterday that Jeremy Corbyn would not be voted uh, into a position to be the next prime minister of Great Britain. And clearly, just about everyone in Great Britain and the United Kingdom listens to the three martini lunch because, boy, did they respond (laughs) yesterday. Uh, The conservatives, the Tories, they were hoping for a majority just within their own party, and they got it with plenty of room to spare. They needed 320-some, I think, to uh, have a working majority. They got 364 at least. There's still one uh, seat left to be called. But uh, a huge win for conservatives, a very bad night for labor. They're worse since the 30s, the biggest dominant election night for the conservatives since Margaret Thatcher in 1987. So, uh, Jim, a lot of good things to come out of this. Um, Number one is that... uh, the U.K. can hopefully finally now get get some resolution and some finality on Brexit. But more importantly than that, uh, we're not going to deal with Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn for all the reasons we talked about yesterday. Uh, Corbyn did win his constituency, which is the uh, British term for district. Uh, they've got actually more in their little country than uh, we've got in our big country. But that's the way it works over there. He gave a victory speech, which was not much of a victory speech since the Labor Party got trounced. But he did say a couple of things which I think are worth hearing today. First of all, listen to how he talked about his agenda for the UK. We put forward a manifesto of hope, a manifesto of unity. Yeah, when you use the word manifesto, that uh, connotates some things you really don't want to get into. Thanks, Karl Marx. But uh, here's the best news. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. So we'll see where Labour heads from here, Jim, but uh, going with the hardcore socialist anti-Semite turned out to not be a very good move, and kudos to the British people for knowing what to do like yesterday. Yeah, go figure. Um, really remarkable figure that uh, I heard last night was floating around uh, Twitter. There was a gentleman who was an advisor to Tony Blair, uh, speaking on one of the British television programs, and he said that... Uh, in the parliamentary system in the UK, if you win an election, you don't need to call another election. They don't have regularly scheduled terms the way we do in the US. Um, so Johnson can be there for up to five years uh, if he wants to call another election and he's feeling good about his chances of winning again. He can do it at any point in the next couple of years, uh, but he's got to do it within five. If Boris Johnson serves the full five years, it will mean that the only figure in the Labour Party who has ever won a national election in the last 50 years is Tony Blair. Hmm. And I found that just to be an absolutely stunning view. I mean, you know, we thought Republicans had a good run for a long stretch. Man, look at that. And the interesting thing is, is there have been a bunch of, uh, you know, British conservative leaders who've been eh, maybe not so great. Maybe nobody's really singing the praises of John Major and David Cameron was okay. And so the interesting thing is amongst folks on the left side of the aisle or left side of the political spectrum uh, over in the UK, Tony Blair is seen as this 
insufferable squish sellout who moved the party to the center and barely want to think. Now, the irony is, I think if you talk to a decent number of U.S. conservatives, we kind of like the guy. Uh, if for no other reason than the way he stood by the United States after 9-11 and sent British troops to Afghanistan and Iraq, and you know, certainly paid a very big political price for all of that. But Greg, I always like the idea of Bush and Blair being this perfect mismatched buddy cop movie. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you know, it's, it's, I think you know, that if you look at this, the Labour Party should be looking at this and saying, wow, we really do terribly when we don't try to be close to the center. And we have a terrible record of this. What were we thinking? What were we doing? We should never do that again. And Corbyn should really, really fade into oblivion for you know a good long stretch. I think they're going to learn this lesson. I don't know for certain they're going to learn this lesson. I, I do think it is worth noting that this is one of those, probably about once a generation, do you get to run up against an opponent that is as bad <laughs> by so many different measures as Jeremy Corbyn. So on the one hand, you know, kudos to the British Conservative Party. Remember, there were people who thought Boris Johnson was was risking his prime ministership with this. And, you know, there's another kind of interesting moment that uh, as, during that, you know, stretch where they were in Parliament and it was, you know, the evergreen Twitter headline, Parliament faces key vote on Brexit. There was that long stretch where they couldn't vote on the Brexit deal, couldn't vote to undo the Brexit deal, couldn't vote to get rid of uh, Boris Johnson, couldn't vote to get somebody else. They were kind of like stuck in neutral and everything. And there were 20-some members of the British Parliament who are of the Conservative Party who said they were going to support Brexit, but when the deal actually was put in front of them, they voted no. And Boris Johnson kicked him out of the party, effectively. And this was seen as a drastic move, as a as a you know very bold or or you know crazy move. Or, you know, and it ended up. A lot of people said last night, you know what, that really paid off because it said to the country, "I am serious about Brexit. We are a pro-Brexit party. This is our agenda." You can't campaign on one thing and then say, oh, I changed my mind once you're in office. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, the exit polls indicated a lot of British people still have some a bunch of concerns about Brexit. However, three years of staying in neutral strikes them as worse. Um, and I really thought that the slogan enough was very effective. Who, who would have figured a one word slogan could say everything you need to say? Uh, that, of course, in the absolutely terrific Love Actually ads. So um, yeah. congratulations to the British Conservative Party. Good riddance, Jeremy Corbyn. It is nice to know at least one Western democracy appears from where we're sitting to be headed in the right direction. Two quick takeaways from watching some of this last night, Jim. And uh, I haven't watched a lot of election night results in the UK. I did dip in uh, during the actual Brexit referendum. But this was different. This was parliamentary elections. First of all, I would love to borrow the British exit pollsters who said it was going to be 368 for the Conservatives. It turned out to be at least 364. So they're pretty much spot on. Seems like they know what they're doing a little bit better than some of our exit pollsters. And secondly, I don't know if you watched when some of these constituencies were called all the candidates that ran against each other had to stand on the same platform while someone came up and read each person's name and how many votes they got. And then the winner got to give a little speech. Quite awkward. In fact, when Corbin gave his victory speech, he had a guy in kind of this uh, Mardi Gras type style outfit and a big floppy hat named Nick the Brick, who was obviously a uh, uh, distant uh, finisher in that particular race. But uh, everybody's up on stage and you got to listen to the guy you lost to in person. I love that, Greg. Uh, and the other thing, the only thing that made that any better, I actually think that uh, Boris Johnson had the better one. He managed to beat Elmo from Sesame Street. And I believe, was it Lord Buckethead was the giant Darth Vader-like figure who appeared yes. to have a waste paper basket on his head. And he thanked both of them for their hard efforts. <laughs> it, it was like, on the one hand, we think of the Brits as being like stuffy and, and you know, 
uh, uptight and all that kind of stuff. And then they have this wacky side that comes out in their politics. Yeah, that, I, I I love that system. It'd be lo- fascinating to watch every single person react uh, and have to and have to sit there and smile politely as their opponent gives their oh thank you for all the votes, thank you for this you know smashing victory. <laughs> Yes. All those uh, ancillary candidates makes the California recall from many years ago look like a dignified process. So uh, good job, UK. Good job. We only have good things to say about you today. All right. Let's move on to our second good martini, Jim. And we've heard this before, but it looks like this is uh, actually happening, at least phase one. And yes, we're talking about the U.S.-China trade agreement. Uh, NBC News reports the U.S. and China have reached an agreement on phase one of the deal. President Trump confirming the news in a tweet, of course. And he says, quote, we have agreed to a very large phase one deal with China. They have agreed to many structural changes and massive purchases of agricultural product, energy and manufactured goods, plus much more. Meanwhile, we'll continue to levy a 25 percent tariff on approximately $250 billion of imported Chinese goods. Uh, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative uh, confirming that today. And tariffs on another $120 billion would be reduced to 7.5%. It also delays the implementation of a 15% tariff on $156 billion in Chinese imports. So phase one, Jim, I assume means there are more phases to come. But uh, at a time when we're also talking about getting closer to having the USMCA done, although Pelosi seems a little too happy about the Final details of that. Uh, it's making me a little squeamish. Uh, but uh, it looks like we're getting rid of some uncertainty here. The markets love it already. And hopefully that means good things down the road. Yeah. And if somebody wants to say, Jim, Greg, you guys are such right wing hacks. Here it is, Friday the 13th. Dun, dun, dun. And you're not even talking about the impeachment. Uh, Jim had the audacity to call it boring earlier in this podcast. Well, you notice the oddity in which um, right before they were moving forward, the articles of impeachment, uh, Pelosi and the other Democrats said, hey, we've worked out a deal on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, which was, you know, one of the biggest issues and one of Trump's big promises. He is a monster who must be removed, but also we worked out a deal with him on trade. Um, In addition to this news from China, which again, you know, with all the appropriate caveats, Trump tends to talk these things up and then the details aren't as great as they sounded like in the initial announcement. Um, but I also noted we worked out the U.S.-Japan trade agreement, which gave us uh, greater access to their markets for agricultural exports. And I believe it was somewhere over in the EU. Um, we're getting some more of our beef exports over there under a deal that's been worked out. So for a president who was supposed to be this, uh, you know, and who largely has lived up to this image of being, you know, eager to announce tariffs. You know, he said trade wars are good and easy to win and all that kind of stuff. We actually have had some movement on some of these fronts. And, you know, you can probably argue whether the president cares more about getting the signing ceremony and the perception of victory than actual, uh, uh, you know, how, how, we can argue how much these trade deals actually change the status quo. But this is kind of a big deal that these things are starting to accumulate. And the idea of, you know, here's a president who's went in, wanted to change things and appears to be changing things. Although I think you can argue, you know, the Scott Linicombs of the world would probably say, yeah, this isn't really that much of a change. Nonetheless, this is the idea that he's, you know, the idea that he'd gotten us stuck in a cul-de-sac and we were, uh, becoming isolationist and, and losing all of our access to foreign markets. Bit by bit, it appears like we're starting to see some thawing in these relationships, and uh, it's good to see. Absolutely. So we'll see what comes next. Uh, the details will matter, but uh, there was a lot to demand from China. So hopefully China made some major concessions, not only on what they're going to accept, but in terms of uh, their currency, intellectual property, 
uh, force technology transfers. It's uh, it's a long wish list, so I don't, I'm sure we didn't get everything we wanted, but uh, any progress on some of those major issues would be very, yeah. very good. You know, Greg, the only thing that's wrong with China is the government. All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim, and uh, let's talk about Joe Biden. There's been a lot about Joe Biden uh, already in this campaign, uh, his uh, odd statements and stumbles on the campaign trail, obviously uh, what he did to uh, make sure that the prosecutor got fired in Ukraine, Hunter Biden uh, with Burisma and all that stuff. We've talked about it a lot. But now, as you point out in the jolt today, the Washington Examiner out with another story on Biden. And this goes back uh, to 1988, which is, ironically enough, the first time Joe Biden ran for president. Back in 1988, uh, when Hunter Biden was just 18 years old, he was arrested on the Jersey Shore on drug charges and had his record expunged at a time when his father was pushing for the incarceration of drug offenders drawn disproportionately from minority groups, as the examiner reports. Congressional records reveal that Hunter Biden, now 49, was arrested at Stone Harbor, where the Biden family has often holidayed over the years. I always love it when holiday's a verb. But, uh, Jim, uh, you have said in the jolt today that uh, Biden has uh, withstood a lot already in this campaign, but this looks different. What do you mean? Yeah, so either part of this equation, I think Biden could survive, but not the two of them together. And let me let me walk you through there. You notice Biden is still front runner, and more than a few folks on the left had said, hey, look at his support for the crime bill. Hey, look at how he was a, a classic tough on crime uh, Democrat back in the 1990s. He's, you know, a very eager enthusiast of the death penalty and, and all of that. Isn't this terrible? And most Democrats aren't all that worried about that. And I think one of the reasons is, particularly, you know, you look at the demographics that like Biden the most, it tends to be older Democrats. They remember that back in the 80s and 90s, everybody was tough on crime. Everybody was, was you know, touting how, how, how much they were going to crack down hard on crime and lock them up and throw away the key and even things on, on drug use. During the, the war on drugs, crack babies, Bernie Getz shooting up the New York City subway. You know, if you weren't there, kids, you know, people were scared. And so the idea that, you know, Biden was doing something outrageous with these stances back then, I think just most people are just not going to buy into that. Similarly, as much as, you know, the Biden Burisma stuff, uh, Hunter Biden's role in Burisma has caused the uh, uh, Joe Biden some headaches. Look, Hunter Biden appears to have a whole bunch of problems in his life. Drug addiction appears to be a factor. There was the messy divorce. There were the reports of the strip clubs in Washington, D.C. and New York City. Look, I am sure um, being the son of a famous politician is not an easy thing to be. I'm sure you're wondering, how the hell am I going to make something of myself? Am I always going to be in my dad's shadow, et cetera, et cetera? But Hunter Biden's got a whole bunch of problems. Most Americans know someone who has struggled with addiction, drug addiction, alcoholism. You know, sadly, these are not rare problems in American life. And so, to, you know, as they say, this can happen in the best of families. It is not necessarily a sign that, oh, there's something wrong with the Biden family because someone has a drug problem. That having been said, you put these two pieces together, then it turns into a very different story because then it turns into, oh, Joe Biden is that classic politician who wants to enforce the law tough on everybody else. But things are different when it's his kid. And I think that's the sort of thing that's going to resonate. I think every other Democrat in this race is going to be licking their chops. And it really makes Joe Biden look like a guy who doesn't believe the rules apply to him and his family, doesn't believe the laws will be tough on everybody else. But uh, when it's his kid, oh, no, he's got an addiction problem. I think a lot of people uh, this this will I could very conceivably get people to really kind of turn on Joe Biden 
and see him as just another politician. Um, and let's face it, you know, Biden's history and his family are a very big part of why people like Joe Biden. And this makes him look like a giant honking hypocrite. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how he goes. The other thing is, is that there are politicians who could probably talk their way out of this. But Joe Biden, certainly at this stage of his life, does not appear that kind of guy. I don't think the outrageous, how dare you attack my family charge is going to work on this. The apology tour, the idea of I was wrong. You know, I should have seen every drug person who's struggling with a drug addiction the way I saw my kid. Maybe he could pull that off. But otherwise, man, this is this is the sort of thing that opposition research uh, uh, you know, folks dream about. Uh, and it really makes Joe Biden look bad. It's almost got a Kamala Harris vibe to it, uh, where she was laughing about smoking weed if she ever actually did that back in her dorm room in the 80s while she was listening to Tupac before Tupac ever made a record. Uh, and then she was locking up marijuana offenders later on. It's basically the the, the centerpiece of the Tulsi Gabbard uh, kneecap job at the debate. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a little bit different. The circumstances are different when it's your child and so forth. But uh, when you're talking about consistency in, in principles, uh, there is a similarity there. Yeah, I mean, you can very easily see Warren or Buttigieg or I guess even Bernie Sanders as somebody turning to Biden on the debate stage and saying, how many of America's young people went to jail and got a criminal record that will follow them for the rest of their lives because they were taking drugs the same way your son was and because they didn't get the second chance that your kid got? And that's going to be a tough, tough moment for Joe Biden in one of these debates. Jim, we finally reached the weekend. It is, in fact, Friday, and uh, next week will be really quiet. It's only the floor debate on impeachment. Yeah, that's all. Anyway, have a good weekend. Uh, So glad you were with us as well on the Three Martini Lunch today. If you don't already, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a nice review over at iTunes. We always appreciate those. And uh, join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.